I want you to take your copy of Scripture tonight and turn with me to Matthew chapter number 27. Matthew chapter number 27. And thank you, Sandra, for that wonderful song. Every night I've enjoyed the choir. I've enjoyed special songs. And my heart has been blessed by being with you. Uh, my wife and I, on our way home Sunday evening, uh, was talking about how pleasant uh, the people were at this church and how much we enjoyed being with you. And I share that same sentiment tonight on our last night together, that I'll be praying for you and praying that God will continue to work in this church every week. You know, when I was at Wartburg First Baptist Church, I would say to them, every week keeps getting better. That might be something that you want to adopt as well. Uh, we had some very grim circumstances. We had a nice building and about 42 people meeting in it. We were right in the center of town. And every week we worked hard as a church family to expand our influence and share the gospel, make a difference in our community. And just a little bit at a time, every week, we just kept notching away and working hard, and God blessed that church in a glorious way. I believe 2016, when we were there, uh, we were one of the top 10 churches in the state of Tennessee in baptisms. We were ranked right there with Bellevue Baptist in Memphis, uh, Severe Heights over in Knoxville. And right there was little First Baptist Church of Wartburg in the middle of all of those giants. Can I tell you that God wants to do that in every church? And he wants to do it in this church. And I believe that you're the kind of people in this town that can get it done for the Lord. You just got to believe that. And you got to live in the spirit of revival. And sometimes I think we look at revival as just a moment or an experience after a series of meetings. But I think when we're living in obedience to God, reaching our community, that is a spirit of revival that none in this world can match. And I am praying God does a great work in the hearts of this community in the days to come. Please look with me in Matthew chapter 27. Will you stand? And then you can be seated after we pray. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse number 33. And we'll read down through verse 39. The Bible said when they were come unto the place called Golgotha, that is to say a place of a skull, they gave him, speaking of Jesus, vinegar to drink, mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. They crucified him, parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down... They watched him there and set up over his head the accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. 
Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand, another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. Will you join us for prayer? May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Father, take this time we have together, anoint it by the Holy Spirit, help our hearts and minds to be attentive, and may we make a commitment from our heart right now that if the Lord speaks to our heart about doing something that needs to be desperately done, that we will be obedient and responsive to the Lord. Father, I pray, Lord, anoint your servant, give me clarity of speech, and I pray for your people that you would allow the Word of God to find a resting place within their heart and mind. God bless our time together this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. You may be seated. Peter Marshall describes the text in Matthew chapter 27 like this. He said, the great crowds which had followed the procession to the governor's palace were shouting and chanting on their way to Calvary. He said they were making it to a place called Golgotha. And you can almost imagine, he said, the silhouette of three men hanging on crosses on the hill. He said this place in which they were hanging on the cross, this general location was referred to as the place of the skull. Randy and I had the privilege in 2020, early in that year, to visit Jerusalem. We were there at that very place that is referred to as Gordon's Calvary. You could see the imprint of a skull by looking at that hill. Earlier pictures of that same hill looks more clear and vivid as what it was. Erosion and time has brought it really to a relic of its former self. But I thought that that particular place that day lent its definition that Peter Marshall described it of those two roads converging at that place, the garden tomb nearby, referred to as Gordon's Calvary because it was Gordon who had discovered this garden tomb close to the place in which Jesus died. It's amazing that place now is occupied by the Muslims. They put their signs around the brow of that hill that God did not have a son. Well, I'm here tonight to tell you that he did. His son was Jesus Christ. He's seated at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And I believe with all my heart that this place that was such a place of torture, a mockery before the world became a beautiful sign of redemption. 
Someone said that you could smell the stench of death around the valley beneath the foot of the cross. You could almost smell the evil smelling smoke that curled up and wafted through the brow of Golgotha. This was not an unfamiliar place to people of that day. It was a place of execution. They knew what it was. And there hung three men. Never before had anyone hung upon a cross with such an epithet over their head. This is the king of the Jews. Do you remember the controversy about what he said versus the reality of who he was? And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Dr. R.G. Lee said about Jesus in this passage, there is Jesus, he said, the great Rose of Sharon. And he's hanging in between the two cactus plants of Satan. Two thieves, one on one side and one on the other. Later, one repentant, the other unrepentant. One going to be with him and one going to the place of the damned. We read about the Apostle Paul in his final words that he had fought a good fight and he kept the faith and finished the course. And we would say that was the last sermon of Paul. In the text in Matthew 27 tonight, I want to give you a sermon for just a little while on the last sermon of Jesus. It wasn't one that he preached necessarily with his lips, but a sermon that he lived with his life in his final hours. You're aware of the seven sayings of the cross. You're aware of the suffering hours of Jesus right before he made those final words known and gave up the ghost but the last sermon of Jesus is best pictured in the word Calvary do you realize that this is the only place that that word appears in all of the text of the Bible the word Calvary you can't find it any other place it's in that one place alone but Calvary is the last sermon of Jesus. What Jesus did there on the cross was the message that the world desperately needs. He hung there upon the cross bearing your sins and my sins upon his own body. The Bible said that it's a good thing that one would die for someone else. But may I suggest that it's an even greater thing that Jesus would die for all of the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You see, Calvary was a geographical place. We can visit the site, the location where Jesus was crucified. That place of the skull. And there upon that hill, Jesus Christ 
breathed his last breath, gave up the ghost, and died for the sins of the world. But long before that day ever happened, the Lord gave us Old Testament indications that Jesus would come. He gave us the picture of Genesis 22, when Abraham takes his only son up the mountain. And when they arrived at the top of the mountain and he lays his son upon the altar, God provides a ram caught in the thicket as a substitute for Abraham's son, Isaac. God was picturing what Jesus would do. The Bible says that the gospel was preached unto Abraham. We know that Abraham fully understood the picture and the portrayal in which he was enacting because the Bible tells us that God preached the gospel unto him. Exodus chapter number 29, we have a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. Exodus 29, verse number 14, the Bible said, But the flesh of the bullock and his skin and his dung shalt thou burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. The same idea is repeated in Leviticus chapter 4, verse number 12, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27. And then we find a reminder of this very thing in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. May I read it to you? For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he may sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13, let us go forth therefore unto him without or outside, if you will, the gate or the camp, bearing his reproach. See, the Jews had rejected the Lord Jesus and they had cast him outside the camp. Randy and I visited an area where they say the night before his crucifixion, There's no doubt that he was held there beneath the house of Caiaphas. We could only imagine that night when Jesus was there awaiting his crucifixion. You remember all of those fake trials that they had processing Jesus from one person to another? But it's greater than that. It was the sinless Son of God dying for all sinful mankind. It's amazing, isn't it? I was told a story some years ago about a a gentleman that uh, was watching his father plow a field. While his father was plowing a field, he had come over to check on his father and found that his father was down in that valley plowing and there was a group of young men in the neighborhood in that town that came and they had gathered up a bunch of clots of dirt and they had gotten on the side of that hill and 
they were throwing those clots of dirt and hitting that boy's daddy as he was plowing the field. They had hit him with a clot of dirt in the side of the head, but he just kept plowing. And they would laugh and make fun of him. And that young boy didn't like that. He couldn't hardly stand to watch those boys mock and make fun of his father. And he began to think, what should I do? Well, he knew there was so many of those boys, and they were so much bigger than he was, that if he went over there, they would overtake him. It would do no good. So the only thing he thought I can do is he goes down into the valley with his daddy. He grabs a hold of the other side of his daddy's plow and he stands there with his daddy. Those boys continued to throw the clots of dirt. They hit his dad. They hit him. But the story went a little bit like this. He said there was really nothing I could do to save him from the mockery. But I joined him in the midst of the mockery. And that was the best that I could do at that moment. May I say to you that there are things as it relates to Jesus Christ. When we accept Calvary, when we trust him as Savior, we identify with his cross, don't we? We identify with a world that mocked him and ridiculed him and made fun of him. Before I got saved, the death of Jesus didn't mean anything to me. It didn't impact me in a personal and a powerful way. But that night in Eddyville, Kentucky, in that little Southern Baptist church, an old-fashioned Southern Baptist evangelist preaching on hell. Can you believe it? And he gave an invitation, and I come streaming down that aisle and knelt on the altar. And that night, I'm sure somebody in the crowd said, it's just another kid. Can I tell you, I'm 45 years old, and that's been 40 years ago since I knelt in that altar on a Tuesday night in a revival service, October, and God saved my soul. It was this past week, on the 21st, when I knelt in an altar and gave my heart and life to Jesus, the cross didn't mean as much to me until I accepted Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. See, it wasn't the words Jesus said, but what he did on the cross that made the difference. He was dying for our sin. The scripture said that he was outside of the city, and when you look at where Calvary is located geographically, you understand that they took him north of the city and outside the gate of Damascus, and that's where they crucified him. They couldn't do this inside the gates or inside the city. It would have violated things. And so this crowd, they cried, crucify him, and they made their way up to the place in which they took this cross, putting the body of Jesus upon it, and then jolting it in its socket. Can you imagine the body of Jesus just 
suspended on this cross and when they jolted it in and you feel the pain of those nails and those spikes in the hands and the feet and the weight of the whole body being pressed in that way. The asphyxiation that must have started permeating through the body of Jesus as he's hung there. The crown of thorns that they put on his head to mock him. Those long thorns penetrating the skin and the skull and into the brain and into the nervous system. Feeling pain all over his body from being beaten to the point of death but yet still living. Why did Jesus do that? Why did he hang on a cross at this geographical location called Calvary? Because he had a sermon to deliver, a message for the whole world, and hope for people who were trapped in their sinful condition. Jesus Christ is hope. And he has a message of hope. It is a geographical location. You can go to the place, the place called Calvary. Secondly, tonight it was a spiritual place. I give you some indications of why it was a spiritual place, but the Bible said in verse 35 of this chapter, Matthew 27, and they crucified him there. In Galatians chapter 1, verse number 4, Paul wrote, Jesus gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from the present evil of this world and he did it according to the will of God the Father Jesus was doing a heavenly transaction for the redemption and ransom of souls upon the cross you know we're living in a day where people don't like confessing their sins do they it's hard to find a sinner anymore these days Somebody said if George Washington had been caught cutting down the cherry tree today, they would have carried him to court and they would have said to him, George, did you cut down the cherry tree? To which he would have responded, yes, judge, I cut down the cherry tree. But I want you to know that I was overreacting toward a father who was too hard on me. And I'm rebelling against the kind of society that you, judge, are bringing about. I'm a victim of the circumstances, judge, because of where I was born. And although I cut down the cherry tree, I'm not personally responsible for doing so. It's amazing how far we've come in America Folks used to know they were sinners. You didn't have to convince them of that. It was a whole lot easier to get somebody saved when they already knew they were lost and knew they were sinners. But we're living in a day where some do not want to admit their sin and confess their wrongdoing. I heard about a company that was bringing out its newest product. They'd been working on it. It was dog food. And uh, they were asked by the owner of the company, we've put out this new dog food. How is the advertising? 
And the advertising executive said, it's the best. He said, what about the ad campaigns that are going out? He said, we've received top awards. He said, okay, how about the product design? Oh, it's amazing. Rave reviews. He said, what about the production manager? What is he saying about how we're getting the product to market? He said, we're doing it in record time. And every question that the president of the company asked, they answered in the most appropriate way. He said, well, then why are we not selling this stuff? And one of them spoke up with the courage that he mustered up and said, them silly dogs won't eat it because they don't like it. We got to have somebody to blame, don't we? And they blame the dogs. Well, I want to tell you something. We're living in a day where we need people to take personal responsibility. You remember that old song, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Can I tell you spiritually, we were all there that day when they crucified the Lord. Every boy and girl, every man and woman standing there spiritually and positionally, we are all sinners for which Jesus was hung upon the cross for. It is a spiritual place, Calvary. It's amazing. Sometimes we wonder about our own lives where we stand with God. But if you look close enough, you'll see your sin. I remember a lady saying something like this, I really just don't know what sins I've committed. An evangelist said to her, well, sister, why don't you just get down on your knees and guess at them? And the story goes that when she got down to pray, she guessed what her sins were the first time she guessed. I mentioned D.L. Moody last night. Someone come to him and said to him on one occasion, I really don't know what sin it was that got me out of sweet fellowship with God. And D.L. Moody said, just go get along with God and remember the time when there was peace and happiness in your soul and remember the moment when that went away. And the gentleman said when he got along with God, he remembered that moment. He remembered that place of disobedience and he got that right with God and everything changed. Uncle Bud Robinson, the old Nazarene preacher, said that when he got out of God's will that the birds stopped singing and the bees stopped buzzing in his soul. But when he made things right with God, the sun started shining, the bees started buzzing, and the birds started singing, and everything was right deep down in his soul. Ladies and gentlemen, Calvary tells us that no matter what we've done, where we've been, that there is forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. You don't have to carry the heavy burden of sin. Jesus carried it to the cross, 
He endured it on the cross. He died for our sin. And all we have to do is confess it, forsake it. It's a spiritual place. I like the old song, I believe in a hill called Mount Calvary. I believe in whatever the cost, when time has surrendered and the earth is no more, I'll still cling to the old rugged cross. Can I tell you he left the cross empty and the tomb empty and he is present in heaven at the right hand of God. It is a wonderful thing to know Jesus and to know what he did on the cross was for you and I. It was a geographical place. Calvary was a spiritual place. And finally tonight, it was a and is a perpetual place. Every promise that we know comes by the way of Calvary and by the way of the cross. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You cannot come to God in prayer except you come through Jesus Christ. You cannot come to God in salvation except you come by Jesus Christ. You cannot get into heaven except you are permitted in through Jesus Christ the Lord. And the promise of Calvary is the finished work and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. I want to close with this story. I think it really tells what Jesus did for us. You see, Calvary is a perpetual place. And every day of my life since 1982, I have felt the presence of God because of the wooings of Calvary in my life. I am saved as much today as the moment that I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. You and I will one day be delivered from this earth, and it will be because of what took place on Calvary and our faith in Jesus Christ. The story is told of a young father, his wife, and their four-year-old son. They lived in a small house on the banks of the Ohio River. His responsibility was taking a bridge that would be elevated so the boats could come through the Ohio River Channel, and he would lift that bridge for the boats to come through, but he would draw that bridge back into place where the tracks would meet up so the train could come through. He had gotten news that the fourth train of that day was coming through, and he was having to get the tracks back in place. He had done it many times. And when he would do it, he would push a switch, and the track would come into place and lock back in. It would take the same order. It would move in this track, and it would align itself, and it would turn from red to green, indicating that everything was in the proper order. But this day, this particular time, the light did not go from red to green. It stayed red and it started flashing. He knew something was wrong. 
And so what he did, he grabbed a tool in which he had been trained and taught to manually do this if this ever happens where the light did not turn green. He is to work this tool and he is to take a large piece of steel and pull it out and put it into place and it would, by default, repair the breach. The problem was the train is on its way and it's getting close and he's just now getting it to the point to where he has manually modified it. The train is so close and he hears his four-year-old boy screaming, Daddy, Daddy, as he's running down the tracks. He wants to save his boy, but he can't save his boy and save the train either. The people that boarded that train did not really realize what was going on in order to save their lives. He couldn't save his boy and hold on to what he was doing. There wasn't enough time and so the train comes and sweeps through and takes the life of his little boy. Much like Calvary. God looks at a whole world like those passengers on the train never realizing the gift of life that they had been given because somebody on the outside of that train was making manual adjustments and made an ultimate sacrifice so that their day would continue on. People reading the newspaper in the train, people riding to work on the train, kids playing in the floor of that train, never realizing the sacrifice on the outside of that train that was going on. I think much of this world is busy. They're going to and fro and doing their daily activities, but don't really realize what Jesus did on Calvary to redeem their eternal soul. And let me put it like this in conclusion. Jesus was as much God as God the Father was God. And Jesus gives his life on the cross for sinful man. And God in heaven looks at Jesus, his son, hanging on the cross and turns his head away. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Can I tell you why God turned his back on his son is because his son was bearing your sin and my sin in his own body. Here is the last sermon of Jesus. Maybe not what he said is important as much tonight as what he did. What he said was valuable, but what he did was eternal. Only Jesus could die for the sins of the whole world. And Paul told us why. Paul said because he was risen from the grave that our faith is living and vibrant and hopeful 
And without the resurrection, our faith, he said, would be invalid. And Paul said what Jesus did on the cross was the atoning measure for our sin. And the resurrection validated it all. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus is the gospel. And here's what I want to say to you in closing tonight. If you get to heaven, you are going to have to make a trip to Calvary. You may never visit the geographical location, but you must visit the spiritual location. That night in Eddyville, Kentucky, at the Pleasant Hill Baptist Church, I took a trip to Calvary. I can say that I've seen the Lord through the witness of His Word. Seven acres of heaven settled down in my little heart. And I'm as saved today as I was the moment I trusted Him. Tonight, I want to ask you a question as we stand to our feet and prepare our hearts for invitation time. Fisher, I'm proud of you for trusting the Lord yesterday evening. But it really doesn't matter what age we are, what stage of life that we're in, if we've never spiritually been to Calvary, if we've never took to heart the last sermon of Jesus, then we need to do business with God. Our brother is going to lead us in a verse of imitation after prayer. I'm going to be around the front. Pastor Randy will be around the front. The altar has been used so wonderful this week. I mean, you have prayed and talked to God. That's what we need to keep doing is flooding the altars and praying and talking to God. But I want to ask somebody tonight, if God is speaking to your heart about your soul's salvation, if you were to die, if you were to face God right now, are you ready to meet him? Mom and daddy can't answer that for you. Your family, your brother, sister can't answer that for you. You're the only one. It doesn't matter if you're on the floor, in the balcony. Whoever you are, God loves you. He wants to save you. And Calvary matters for you. Has anybody ever heard this statement? If you were the only one, Jesus would have went to the cross for you. I promise you that is true. It was true for me. Pastor Randy, it was true for you. It's true for some dear soul tonight. And I want to invite you to come. We'd love to show you how you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're saved. Calvary doesn't mean anything to you. Jesus' death does not really impact you until you have trusted and believed in what Jesus did for you on the cross. And then, ladies and gentlemen, it'll mean the world to you. Let's pray. Father, as our brother Ron leads us in an invitation hymn, and our hearts are being readied for the invitation time, Lord, I have good authority that the Word of God is true and Jesus saves.
I've experienced it, and brothers and sisters all over this building have experienced it, and we know, we can say with Paul, I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed to him against that day. Somebody tonight might need to make their calling and election sure. They might need to settle this matter in their heart of salvation. And dear Father, if they cannot, they cannot say, I know I'm saved. I pray tonight they'll leave this place with assurance in their heart, knowing that they're saved and they've trusted Jesus. God, speak to hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.